The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Daughter Fighting Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, June 11th, the Visit from Mike Berbiglia edition. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the homeschool and family travel blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm mom to three boys, Henry 8, Oliver 6, and Teddy 3, and I'm currently in Navarre, Florida. I'm Jamila Lemieux. I'm a writer, communications consultant, a contributor to Slate's Care and Feeding Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who is seven, and we live in Los Angeles, California. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a writer at Slate. I'm the author of the book, How to Be a Family. I'm the dad to Lyra, who's 15, and Harper, who's 12. We live in Arlington, Virginia. Elizabeth, how was your tropical storm? Well, it was 200 miles away from us and convinced me that if anything larger heads this way, I am not going to be. (laughs) They were like, oh, no big deal. One to three foot, you know, rise. And like the dock was underwater and all kinds of stuff blew around. So no big deal, but enough, enough to teach me as a not native Floridian. What your threshold is. What my threshold is. Yes. Yeah. I did prepare my whole box and, you know, got all ready. We've survived a tropical storm in the first week of hurricane season. Great job. Congratulations. Doesn't look good for 2020. (laughs) (laughs) So today we've got a very exciting guest. We'll be talking to comedian Mike Birbiglia about being a reluctant dad and his new book, The New One. We're also discussing when mommy turns to mom. And as always, we have triumphs and fails and recommendations. I think we should acknowledge that this week's show is quite light and that was intentional. Um, This is a very difficult time. Um, For some of you all, this is the first time that racism has made your lives difficult and complicated. And for others, this is something that you've been living with since you've been living. But I will say, speaking for myself, I need a space to be light and to be funny and to hear people being funny and to talk about other things while on break from the 24-hour news cycle and the conversations and the necessary dialogues and the organizing and the work that is being done right now. However, we are very aware that our audience is in search of community in this moment and wants to talk about what's going on, needs to talk about what's going on. We have a responsibility to you all to bring in voices to help you help yourselves and help your children process what's happening in this moment and figuring out what is best for your family uh, in terms of going forward and being supportive. And we will be doing exactly that next week. Next week's show will be focused on talking to your children about the uprisings, about racism, and we want to hear from you. What are the questions that you have? What are the challenges that you're having in holding those conversations in your household. How can we help? How can our Rolodex of experts be of assistance to you in that moment? So please, if you would like to send us questions, as always, send an email to momanddadatslate.com. Leave a question on our Facebook page by searching for Slate Parenting. And we look forward to having a necessary, though, not terribly light conversation with you all next week. Thanks so much for that. Yeah, I think having a light show this week is just a a nice little break and gives us some time to um, get the right stuff together and and hear from people. So I'm excited about that. And um, last week in Slate Plus, we talked about J.K. Rowling's The Ichabog. 
In light of Rawlings' most recent statements towards trans people, we'd like to urge parents to look into Rawlings' views prior to engaging in her work. For listeners who'd like to learn more about trans rights and gender issues, we're linking to a few resources, which you can find in the show page. Okay, Jamila, do you want to start us off with a triumph or fail? Sure. This week, we are on the cusp of a triumph. I ultimately believe this will be a triumph, and I'll be able to update you all next week on it when all is said and done. But Naima's dad and stepmother have been planning a camping trip for the four of them. That includes Naima and her brother for the last day of school. I think pretty much since we moved to California, you know, they said, we want to go camping. Is this cool? I said, sure. And now the time for the trip has come. And because of just how our schedule shook out this week, on paper, Naima is with, has been with her dad since Sunday evening and would not be returning to spend the night with me for about a week. It would be actually a little bit over a week because she typically does Mondays and Tuesdays with them and they're going camping for three days and she's doing this last school week with them. So it was a lot of time away from me. And so she went from being very excited about this trip that she's been looking forward to for months to calling me on Sunday night, just a couple hours after I dropped her off in tears saying she didn't want to go because they wouldn't, they wouldn't have, you know, they're going out somewhere in the woods and they're not going to have Wi-Fi and she's not going to, you know, I don't know that they'll have phone service. It sounds like they're going to be out and, you know, they're a little bit more crunchy granola than me. Um, (laughs) You know, and so she wouldn't be able to speak to me and granted it's only for two days, but in her mind, she connected, I'll be away from my mom for a week with, we'll be camping for a week. And so even though I kept reminding her when she brought it up and I was like, name, I'm pretty sure the trip is only a couple days. I'll check in with that again. But I think y'all are going for like two nights. You know, she's like, daddy said a week, I'm going to be gone for you for a week. I was like, I don't think anyone's going camping for a week, Naima. Like, they still work. That, that's, they're, I think this is a weekend trip. Her dad and I agreed that, you know, no one's going to force Naima to go if she doesn't want to go. And that I, you know, my immediate reaction, I turned into my mom for a second and I was like, well, the baby don't need to go. You know, that's just it. She'll just stay with me. And then I said, no, I, I don't want us to get into this codependent thing. You know, that this, there's a mother-daughter thing that could very easily happen with us that happened with my mother that was beautiful and, and special in so many ways, but the two of us against the world thing, you know, you have to be careful. And I don't want her to feel like she can't do things like this because I'm not there. And she asked me to come and I, I politely declined for every imaginable reason. But, you know, I also reminded her, <laughs> um, doesn't exactly sound like uh, my idea of a thrilling time to go camping with my ex, his wife, and our collection of children. But I said, you know, I, I think that you are going to have a great time. I know they put a lot of work into planning this trip and I'll be fine. You know, and that's what we agreed to. I said, I'm going to tell her that I'll be fine. I don't want you to worry mm-hmm. about me. I don't want you to worry about me being alone or that something's going to happen to me while you're gone. I will not be going to any protests. I don't know if that's true, but I did say that. But sure. like, <laughs> you know, but I, but I didn't want her to be an anxiety thinking yeah. about, you know, that mommy's going to get arrested or tear gas or something's going to happen and I'm not going to be able to, you know, get to her. So I said, I'll be fine. I want you to have a good time. You know, I think you'll have a great time. It's only a couple of days. I'd even thought about like, well, is there somewhere nearby where I could just like rent a hotel and then like once a day I just go pop by. And then I was like, no, this is ridiculous. Like, no, you know, and so she's back on board with the trip. I think it's going to be great for her. She's enthusiastic about it again. I think she realizes how short it is and, and that, you know, it's giving her some comfort. And also I'm visiting her throughout the week. She actually came back yesterday for a couple of hours because there was a power outage over by their house. And so she came to do her schoolwork with me. And then, you know, I told her I'd visit her on Wednesday. 
I'll go by on Friday for the Zoom end of the year celebration that her class is doing. And so you will lay eyes on mommy plenty of times. I think we realized that like her being away from me, physically apart from me for over a week is too much right now. And so we're not going to do that, but that she should be able to go on this trip. So hopefully when we talk next week, I will be telling you how much fun she had camping and not that I had a very rough weekend because I couldn't get any work done because Naima was back here. (laughs) I believe in Naima. I think she's going to be able to do this camping trip and love it and have a great time. Yes, I think so. You're such a good mom. What a great way to handle that. Just like relieve her of the burden of your, you know, like anything she's worrying about you and tell her to have a great time. Thank you. So, and I and I realized, job, Mom. thank you. Because it took me, I realized, I was like, at first I was like, is she afraid this is about her? And I was like, no, she's worried about leaving me. Yeah. I can't wait to hear about her camping trip. <laughs> and I'm glad you're not going because that would be a mess. Ooh, yeah, no, yes. that, would, um, that would be next week's fail for sure. I, yeah. I, I, like, oh, I shouldn't have been here. Should not have done this. Should not have done this. I thought about it. Simply. Mostly because you don't want to be, right? hundred. <laughs> yes, that's a very big. Even I thought about it, I was like, well, this will be some material, won't it? You know, I was like, I'm right. <laughs> And I was like, I can't do this to I can't do this to oh, any gosh. of us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Dan, triumph or fail? I have a triumph. It's a very simple triumph, but a good one, um, which is just that we went uh, marching this week. We joined a really great socially distanced protest march in Arlington on Saturday morning this past weekend. Like many of the marches around here, this one was organized by local high schoolers who have been very, very impressive out here in the burbs. The marches and protests have been really meaningful, really very impressive. We intentionally chose a march that wasn't late in the day, and so it wasn't likely to see police causing trouble. And the crowd was very energized and very diverse and really, really big. And everyone wore masks and everyone gave each other space. And as we marched up Glebe Road, every car that passed us going south on Glebe Road, all they all honked their horns and uh, and raised fists out windows. When we passed the Mercedes dealership on Glebe Road, all the sales guys stayed inside, but all the service guys came outside to wow. clap for the protesters. And I just generally can't recommend enough taking your kids to protest right now. I mean, protests are happening all over the country. For people who think it's only happening in big cities, that it's only that Washington, D.C. is on fire, that is not the case. There were rallies last week in fucking Hayes, Kansas. So there's yeah. definitely there's one in, a little one in Navarre. Right. Which is, so if there's know, a if there, there's a Black Lives <laughs> Matter rally in Navarre, yeah. there are Black yeah. Lives Matter rallies near you. Yeah. All 50 states at this point. Find it yeah. and bring your kids. It is valuable, important, and but probably about the best thing you can do with your family right now. That's great. Dan. That's great. Okay, so I have a, like, on paper triumph that feels like a fail because of, like, mom guilt. So I've mentioned before that Henry has this neurological condition called PANDAS, which is pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorders associated with strep, which basically means when he was little, he got strep, and the strep started attacking his brain and, like, hit his brain. And so anytime he has infection, the area of his brain that deals with fight or flight is, like, kind of constantly under attack. And we have been... Treating it like a lot of different ways, but had really not wanted to medicate him. Now, the disease itself is treated with like antibiotics, and we have been doing all of that, but it causes all of these like terrible psychological. uh, I talk a lot about the OCD, but also like he can just be very, um, 
like he he thinks that the smallest things are like coming to get him. So he can be violent is not really the word, but really aggressive. It got to the point during kind of the early days of the pandemic, like really bad, like to the point that it was probably not safe to be in the house with our other children without both adults here, just because when he had what we call these like flare ups, there was restraining going on. There's options of like drugs when you go to the hospital or to have the ER come here to give him stuff to calm down. That obviously was not an option during the pandemic. So one of the good things was all of this opened up telemedicine, which gave us access to our specialist like pretty much every week, given our insurance. And that had been a barrier to really trying out some other drugs because you need to have a supervising um, psychiatric person that's not really available in Navarre. The the disorder is very new and there isn't someone here who's willing to take it on. So we have this person, but we can't be in Tampa every week. So anyway, I really struggled over whether to put him on like all the drug options have possible terrible side effects. You know, making those decisions as a parent is like really difficult. Like, do I want to do this? Do I want to go down this road? I have these other two kids. Okay, well, anyway, we decided to try like a a very low dose of a very common anti-anxiety medicine. Things work differently for all kinds of PANDAS patients. They don't really know exactly what's going to work for any one person. And we have tried like there are infusions and we get in-home infusions, like all of this stuff. So she just suggested let's start with this. And you guys, it has been like a miracle drug for us. um, Henry is like a child that I haven't known since he was three. And it is... um, Sorry. No, that's just really amazing. So I am like overjoyed that this is working and I know it won't work forever because um, these things never do. And luckily for us, they're pretty sure that around 18, your entire immune system kind of matures. And this is a pediatric disorder. So they're pretty sure that around 18, pretty much everyone like gets rid of this. Like your body just kind of figures it out and the strep stops attacking your brain. 18 is a long way away. But we have had like two amazing months with him and he is this great child. And I, uh, so it's such a, such a success. I of course feel like a failure because I'm like, why didn't I do this however many years ago? And why didn't we try this? Because I was scared of this. And um, I don't know, I try not to live in that place. But anyway, so I, I just feel like it's been very good for the family. And I'm trying not to be so hard on myself of why I didn't, why I wasn't open to trying some of these things earlier. But yeah, I also wanted to share, if you're interested in all of this, there's a documentary on Amazon Prime called My Kid Is Not Crazy that talks about pandas. Like I said, it's kind of new and getting a diagnosis was terrible. And that's what this documentary is about. But we are just so thankful to have this kid now who's like managing so much of this and the therapy can work so much better because he's there and he it, it literally feels like we had this child that that woke up one morning and is a different person and he loves taking the medicine because he feels better. I mean, it's just like great. That's so great, Elizabeth. And I, great I have met Henry yes, and know that he is Henry. a wonderful yeah. boy. <laughs> um, I love him. And I'm so glad that you have found this and that it's helping. And I also absolve you of all possible (laughs) guilt. I mean, we have gone through similar things of years of trying to figure out what should we, you know, should we think about medication? How do we feel about medication? Talking to people in our family about medication. And it's a very, very hard decision to make. And Working through all the possible options to get yourself to a place where you're comfortable with this decision is not 
being a, a bad parent. That's like the definition of being a good parent. And so don't beat yourself up about that. Be happy with the results that you are seeing now and keep working as I'm sure you will to keep making Henry as happy as possible. I agree. I think that getting a di- the diagnosis itself is such a tremendous triumph. And it's more than just, you know, people can easily wave that, wave that off as just having access to good, you know, healthcare is a privilege. But even with that, I just, I want, I'm very curious to know how many children are walking around with pandas undiagnosed because strep is so common, you know, and, and just simply being seen as, you know, perhaps misdiagnosed with ADHD or just seen as a difficult child. What you all have done for Henry is amazing. And please, you know, forgive yourself for the time that he wasn't medicated. For somebody who takes anti-anxiety medicine and antidepressants myself and spent years getting myself to the place, you know, as an adult, where it was just like, I don't want to be reliant on something to feel okay. You know, am I going to lose my, am I still going to have emotions? Am I going to still feel things? Am I going to be myself anymore? And realizing that, yes, you know, in many ways, all of the above with the right medicine. And it sounds like you all have found the right medicine. And I, I think that's incredible. And that you all took your time. It wasn't that you all ignored the issue and hoped that it would go away. It was simply a matter of exploring what would be the best solution for your family. And it sounds like you found it. So that is all triumph. I have one other thing to say, which yeah. is um, the reason I think the impulse to feel bad comes from this impulse of feeling like the years that you didn't try this medication were wasted in some way, but they obviously weren't wasted, right? I have met and hung out with Henry during (laughs) that time and found him to be a totally great kid. You loved him and enjoyed the vast majority of that time, even through his struggles. It's not like those are like lost years. They're part of true. the experience of growing up, and now you have moved to this different part and revel in that and don't worry about th- about what the past was like. Y'all give such good advice. You should be on a podcast. We should. <laughs> we should. If only we could monetize this. <laughs> no, I, appre- I appreciate Yeah, exactly. I appreciate it so much. <laughs> All right. Well, now that I've bared my soul and cried on this podcast, before we move on, there's some business to do. Slate's parenting newsletter is the best place to be notified about all our parenting content, including mom and dad are fighting, care and feeding, and much more. It's a fun personal email from Dan and on occasion other Slatesters each week. So sign up at slate.com slash parenting email and check us out on Facebook. Just search for Slate Parenting. It's a really active community. Plus we moderate it so it doesn't get out of control. Also, on Facebook, every Tuesday at 11 Eastern, we have a live Karen feeding show with Nicole Cliff. To catch it live, go to Slate's Facebook page or find previous episode on Slate's YouTube page. In Slate Plus today, we'll be discussing adoption influencers with Slate staff writer Ruth Graham. Here's a quick sneak peek of what you'll hear if you have Slate Plus. What's so interesting is I think that there is this kind of instinctive like, oh, that's such a shame, like that must be really hard. But, you know, there is kind of this like, oh, it's just sort of a shame for all parties. And I don't know the specific situation of the Stouffer's family or what they were going through. But at the same time, you cannot imagine a family in their circumstance giving up their biological child. Like, it's, like, inconceivable. And it would be a different kind of scandal on a, like, it just would be, it, it, it's not that that never happens, but those stories aren't told in the same way. And it is just, like, much more shocking in an instinctive way that I think says so much about how we think about adoption. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. 
It's just $35 for your first year. As you may know, a lot of media companies are struggling right now, and Slate is no exception. So now, more than ever, we'd really appreciate your direct support for all of Slate's entertaining content and important journalism. Besides ad-free podcasts, Slate Plus members won't hit the paywall on the site, so you can enjoy all of Slate's journalism without worrying if you've reached your article limit. So if you'd like to support Mom and Dad are Fighting, go to slate.com slash momanddadplus and join Slate Plus today. We are so excited to be talking with our guest this week, Mike Birbiglia. He's a comedian and storyteller. You may know him from his one-man show, Sleepwalk With Me, his appearances on This American Life, or his movie, Don't Think Twice. He's also a dad, and his evolution from doubtful husband to devoted dad is the subject of the new one, Painfully True Stories from a Reluctant Dad. Mike, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. By the way, I don't know if you have this, Dan, with your book, but like, I, I feel pained whenever I hear the subtitle of my own book. Yeah, well, the subtitle is the thing they put on the book to say in the dumbest way possible what the book is. Literally, that's what it is. My wife and I talk about this yeah. all the time. Is like, the new one says it all. Literally, it says it all. It's intended to be the title. And then Painfully True Stories from Reluctant Dad is literally like, wait, I thought that was the description of the book. Now it's in the title of the book. I suggested replacing my subtitle with just the full text of the book, all 100,000 yeah, words. The whole yeah. book. The they, whole book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> so, yes, this is a brand new book from you, Mike, based on your Broadway show and Netflix special. In the show and in the book, you run through the seven reasons why, at one point, pre having kids, you didn't want to have a kid. But so you don't need to give us all yeah. seven reasons, but boil it down for us and for the listeners. Why were you so reluctant before this all started to have a kid? Well, first of all, Dan saw the show, which I think is crucial. It's true. In all of this. From the fourth row. So I was splattered with toys. Exactly. And I say that because it's actually very pleasant because so many interviews I do with people who I, I'm quite certain have not seen the show or read the book. And that's always challenging. The first half of the book is like the seven reasons why no one should ever want to have a child. And the, the second half of the book is about how I had a child and how I was right. And then ultimately I was wrong. And, and that's where the book becomes emotional. But the seven reasons it's like, you know, there shouldn't be children anymore. The earth is sinking into the ocean. People aren't great. I love my marriage. I love my cat. I love... You know, like all the things that I wanted just to, and, and, and that's, that's the way that the book is actually more than like a, just a parenting book. It's really about change and how resistant I was, and a lot of people are, just to change in general. A lot of parenting books don't talk about that sort of greater question of whether to have the kid at all. It's a question we've talked about a lot on the show over the years, and my advice has always been, if you're not sure if you want to have a kid or not, maybe don't have the kid. Sure, I get that. But you went ahead and had the kid. Well, yeah, because it fundamentally came down to Jen. You know, I explained all my reasons and she said, I know all of that and I think you'd be a good dad. And I know that she would be a great mom. And so I was sort of like, well, she's right about 98% of the time, although the painful part of marriage is the 2% where the person's wrong, but their shooting percentage <laughs> is so high, <laughs> then you're really in trouble. Because she's like the Michael Jordan of 
being right. And so then when she puts it up and then turns around and holds her arms out. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> that, that, that is. And so that's when you really get in trouble. But it was ultimately like this thing where it's like, well, she was right about, you know, most things. And so we're going to do it. And it's funny because it's like, I'm sure you guys experience this to some degree. It's like our daughter's five now. And I feel so much differently than I did when I wrote the book. Like to me, the first 13 months of her life were hands down the hardest and most challenging. I felt the most disconnected. I felt like an outsider in my own family. I felt like, you know, the joke I make in the book is I say, you know, my wife and daughter love each other so much and I'm there too. Like, I'm like this pudgy milkless vice president of the family, huge title, no power, also oversees Congress. And like that went away. Like there's a point at which for me, I mean, it's different for everybody with connection. There's a point at which you connect and it's not the same for everyone. And that's the thing that I believe is sort of a thing undiscussed is that my wife connected with our daughter like immediately and it took me like a year. Do you feel more connected now? So I was able to catch the show on Netflix and could definitely relate to some of that. We have three kids, so we've just like outnumbered ourselves. And now my husband and I are unified against them. <laughs> How old are they? How old are <laughs> They're they? um, eight, six, and almost four. Wow. And all boys. It's an army. It's, it's yeah. nuts. But I can definitely relate to that like feeling of when our first one was born, like feeling like it was the first one in me. And then Jeff kind of had this other, like other stuff going on. But that has past you mentioned but are you feeling yeah. more like it's like you guys are a cohesive family unit yeah or? i mean and, and that's why the title like the new one was the intended title because it was like when my wife and i got married it was the idea of two becoming one and at a certain point with me and una and jen it was three becoming one and that's what the new one is it's and it's a triple entendre it's like the new baby the new consciousness the new family unit and it's pretty confusing um, i'm glad you have a subtitle thanks you must be a publisher of a of a major international publishing conglomerate so yeah i mean i feel like it's it is so i mean she's five now and it's just so different than yeah they're more of like a person they're more of a person and look like it's like i'm a verbal person that's how i connect with people and so when they don't talk I'm just like, yeah, I don't know what this is. I I mean, I can take stabs in the dark at what you're trying to say, but I don't really know. And then when they talk, it's like, ah, this is great. They're also, by the way, adorable at this age. Like literally five is like everything they say is adorable. Like the other day I said, mom's going to put you to bed. And and, and it said, she's not your mom. She's my mom. And I said, that's what my therapist keeps telling me. (laughs) because all toddlers have a Boston accent. They're like, I'm tired. (laughs) And Boston toddlers are like, I'm wicked tired. (laughs) It's genuinely like an adorable age. Mike, your work has taken you on the road, obviously, for years. And I would imagine that unless you're doing some sort of secret rogue comedy show somewhere, that you have spent the greater part of the last few months in the house. Yes. How has that changed the dynamic between you and your daughter? As a parent who also spends quite a bit of time on the road for work, I've been confronted with how that distance has allowed me 
some peace, some space, and distance makes the heart grow fonder. And right. not always being confronted with yes. the my daughter's seven, I actually got the well. I just would assume you were talking about your dad. Cause when you said daddy, I thought like, we literally had this conversation last oh, week. That's you know? so funny. You said daddy. So I just thought you meant your father, not Aww. my father. So yeah, I don't get to miss that right now <laughs> as much. <laughs> I think about that all the time. I mean, cause the other thing is that not only am I on the road, but like Jen is an introvert and she's a poet and you know, she wrote this book with me and like, we, I would say writing this book together was the most time we'd ever spent together. Like, <laughs> and we've been together for like 15 years just because just the sheer like amount of like hours in a row and a row and a row, just like working, working painstakingly on this book. Distance is good in our relationship. Like she likes to be alone. I like to be alone with the quarantine. I mean, it's like the play, no exit, you know, it's like, we all know who the characters are and, that's everybody who's in the play and you're going to spend a lot of time with those people. You're forced to sort of confront yourself for one thing. That's a big thing about the quarantine, I think. And then you, you're like, this is the family. These are the people who will be there when I die. If I'm lucky, that's sort of best case scenario. Is there anything you've learned about your daughter over the course of three months? Cause three months in five year old world, that's a different person, you know, than the person you shelter, you began shelter in place with. I was in hindsight, so lucky that the quarantine came at and the shelter in place came at the moment it did, because when I think about how much she's, she grows day over day, week over week. And then I think like I would have been on the road for like two weeks. I would have missed two weeks of that growth. It's, it's madness. To me. And then I start to think about like, you know, other, you know, uh, film directors, you know, I know film directors, they, they leave for movies for six months, eight months, nine months across the world. They see their, you know, kids sometimes not that often in that period of time. The idea of missing that much of my daughter's life is wild to me like i i it's almost inconceivable do you think this is going to change parents thoughts about stuff like that i mean at the end of this are you going to travel less are you going to go on the road less or by the end of this year you're going to be so desperate to be back on the road that you'll you'll have forgotten about how great it was watching all the shame well it's funny because i start like okay so when the so when this shelter in place happened one of the things i noticed was that comedy clubs had to just close and then the people who are hurt most by that are waitstaff. And so I started this initiative on Instagram called Tip Your Waitstaff. And I created the URL tipyourwaitstaff.com. And it basically was a home for GoFundMes for comedy club waitstaffs across the country. And like we've raised a ton of money. It's been a really good thing. And it's you doing having conversations with other comedians, people working on material. Exactly. So it's like working on material with like John Mulaney and Rami Youssef and, and, and just a bunch of Maria Bamford, a bunch of friends who help raise that cause, you know, because that's one of the real struggling industries. But what I realized by doing 30 episodes of that is like, you know, I could also do this. Like, I feel like comedians are usually so proprietary over their material. And they're like, I don't want to reveal things before I go out on tour and all this stuff. And I'm sort of, for the first time going like, I don't mind that. And so like, in a week from now, I'm launching a podcast called working it out and it's literally that it's more streamlined and produced 
and it's an audio, an audio format, but it's um, it's literally called working it out. And I don't know. I mean, like to answer your question, like would I go on the road less? Maybe, or more strategically, maybe. I feel like it's definitely making everyone question how much of their work has to exist outside of the city they live in. You definitely make it sound great, but there's no times in which Una makes it impossible for you to work. Like the corollary experience that many people are having is the joy of this closeness, but then also the frustration of like trying to find the time and space you need to do the things you need to do. You're in a closet right now talking to us. Pres- How dare you? How dare you? Una is somewhere. How dare you, sir? Pestering Jen because she can't talk to you and eventually she'll burst in there and interrupt. But like, how dare you? How dare you insult my family? <laughs> yeah, no, no, you're right. She, well, first of all, she helped build this. This is what Una calls my radio mm-hmm. fort. I always give her credit for it on the podcast. Yeah, I know, of course. It lowers, it certainly lowers your productivity to be around half taking care of your child, half doing your job at the same time. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I have no good answers. I have only more questions. You know what I'm really curious to see, and I have a vested interest in this because I don't know if I've ever mentioned it on the show before, but I have been working on stand-up material all quarantine. Oh, cool. You have not yeah. mentioned this on the show no, before. this is good information. <laughs> I got a lot of different lives, wow. you guys. I have a lot. I moved to LA to, because I'm writing a pilot script, which is a comedy. And so I decided that I would start, you know, Stand up would be a good way for me to try my hand at, you know, to test the material sure. out in front of real people, and it'd be low stakes. I'd go to small, you know, small gatherings. Um, not necessarily that I was pursuing a new career as a stand up comedian. Um, who's to say where it could go? But you know that that wasn't necessarily my end goal. And so this time it's been difficult because I haven't been able to go to shows and and meet people on the scene here in person, and you know, really, you know, take some of the classes I would have wanted to take. Uh, during this time, but I have had, you know, more time to sit down and write material. I've been able to talk to comedians via the phone and Zoom and all that stuff, but without getting all into to me asking for career advice, because we have you here. What I am curious to see is how comedians in particular, so we've seen that musicians and DJs have figured out a way to translate what they do to an at-home audience, sure. right? And how, like, I think Erica Badu, for example, doing concerts that cost a dollar. So as opposed to traveling to a venue where maybe there's 500 people, she can entertain people across the world and make a whole lot more money doing it, right? Um, But that I'm I'm curious to see, you know, there's Twitch and there's Instagram Live, but just like how comedians are going to really take this new normal because we very well could be sheltered to place again a year from now. You know, I don't anticipate that this will be the last time we have to do something like this. Yes. And create comedy in a way that people are able to access it aside from just okay i'm recording a special or i'm recording an album which is a static piece of material but that you still want that audience engagement you know you want a yeah. live crowd you know being able to heckle or to give feedback i've been writing jokes like you um but i've also by the way i've also been working on a vaccine <laughs> and it, it's two parts french toast one part syrup and we're in phase three trials Phase one and two were unsuccessful, <laughs> but we decided to move forward regardless. How things yeah. work in this country. <laughs> it's a, it's a, whole, lot, it's a whole lot less dangerous than other suggestions we've had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I love, that's a good subtweet. 
so yeah, similar to you, I've been writing a lot. And yeah, and sort of reconsidering like what does comedy look like from a distance? I think the Instagram live thing was interesting because like I've done a couple things where it's like on Zoom and like everyone puts their microphone level down so that you can hear laughter, but not everyone's full laughter and their cat and their baby or whatever. That stuff I find to be okay. Instagram live, I think is interesting with the, these tip your ways up things. Cause it's just two comedians talking in my case with, with that. And I think that that's actually a lot like how comedians develop material in the first place. It's almost like you're showing them the rehearsal for the play. And there is value in that, you know, going to like, you know, the rehearsal for Hamilton doesn't substitute for seeing Hamilton with a crowd, but it is pretty interesting. You know what I mean? Like I, like I would dig that certainly. I don't know if I dig it all the time. You know, I think there's a, there's excitement of being in the roar of, of a crowd. I think part of comedy that you'll never be able to virtually simulate is looking around at a room full of people who, if you saw them on the street, you would think they have completely different senses of humor, see things in a completely different way, all laughing at the same joke. And so to me, that was like the catharsis of like, when I saw live comedy when I was 16 for the first time, I saw Stephen Wright at the Cape Cod Melody Tent, Massachusetts. My brother Joe took me and, and it was so cathartic because he was saying, I don't know if you're not familiar with his jokes, he has a lot of like esoteric one-liners where he'll be like, I went to a, a, a drive-in movie in the, in the back of a cab. Movie cost me $95. You know, like it's a lot of stuff like that. And for me, that was cathartic because I was like, oh my gosh, these like sort of outrageous, like surrealist thoughts that, that I thought I had only experienced all of these people are laughing at at the same time. Me, a 16-year-old, and then like the 75-year-old guy like, you know, three seats down. And that's kind of a crazy experience the first time you have it, I think, in comedy. And I think that's part of the reason why live comedy is such a massively popular art form is because you're like, I can't believe we're all laughing at this thing that I thought was sort of a secret thought. Which then that does seem irreplaceable. But I mean, what your Instagram live shows have shown me among a, a bunch of other things that people have been doing right now is that there's a real power in like conversation and in two people riffing off one another in a way that totally. we don't often see like out in the culture world, typically and That's watching right. people That's right. do that in different forms, whether it's in comedy or in, you know, music discussion or debate, or, you know, that's, it's sort of like the podcast mode of conversation becoming a, a slightly more dominant mode of culture because that's so easily de deliverable into people's homes. And I don't mind that necessarily, yeah. even as I worry about never having the experience of being in a sea of people again. But there's also like this weird glut of content right now where there's so much stuff. And then on top of there being so many movies, so many albums, so many TV shows, TV specials. On top of that, you have celebrities, and <laughs> I'm not excluded from this from the Instagram Live, you're just being like, all right, let's roll camera, turn on the phone. And it's like easy, you know, like settle down. You're not as entertaining as you think. 
Like, you do need the 150 film crew members making you look as good as you are uh, able to perform. You know, like, there is value in production. There is value in, like, people putting on a goddamn Broadway show and all the people who go into putting that experience on. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I'm fucking, I'm so sick of the shelter in place, like, content in some ways. Like, I'm like... I'm with it. I'm I'm excited for the cause. I, pr- I appreciate what you're doing. I'm glad you're raising money, myself included. Tip your way so I'm like I'm doing my best, but I'm also kind of like I know this must be a little annoying. When there's some sort of altruistic thing to it, where it's like we're trying to raise money, I think that's totally. a little different. Oftentimes, it's just celebrities saying like, "Hey, look into my fabulous life. We're so bored in the house doing nothing, and the house is like Neverland." You know? Yes. Just that need to constantly fill the space with. The, or perhaps them getting the sort of affirmation and attention that they typically could command otherwise. Me not being a celebrity, the fact that I got stoned and went on IG Live and cooked collard greens for the first time does not count because that is top flight co- uh, wow. content. And Correct. I think the 10 people who watched it really learned something. <laughs> Mike, I wanted to come back to the book for one last question and, and ask sure. you mentioned, you know, writing the book with Jen was a pretty intense experience of togetherness, like creating this thing. And in a lot of ways, it, you know, it's it's like creating a baby, right? You're collaborating on sure. something that together represents, you hope, the best of you. During that process, while you're writing the book with Jen, what kinds of things did you learn about her and about your relationship and the way you work together creatively? Well, Jen is, you know, for many years has is a poet who's written under a pseudonym. She's really private. She's introverted. I convinced her to write this with me. And part of it was that she was completely comfortable sort of just living in the shadows and writing in the shadows, never never publishing anything mainstream or that, that goes really wide or that she has to put her name or face on. I tried to convince her that like, no, this is a meaningful thing. I think people are going to get something out of this. And if they're experiencing a similar feeling, that'll help them feel less alone. And I think that one of the things that I realized from working with her, because I think her poetry is so brilliant, is it made me think about pseudonyms and, and private and introverts. And if indeed, like, Jen is this person who was completely comfortable sort of writing in a vacuum and like having things just live on her computer for decades how many more people like that are there? And, and I'd never thought about that before. I, as, as sort of like a semi-extroverted performer, I'd always thought like, well, if you have a, a good piece of writing, it's out there. Right. And I think I was wrong if about that. If you have that. a thought, you say it out loud. If you have a thought, you say it <laughs> right. in public. And I think I, I think I was wrong about that. I feel it made me think like that there's, thousands if not millions of unpublished work that is as as deep and profound and well-written as anything that, that we see. The book is already out on Audible. That's right. Yeah. I did take like a little listen and I like love your like humor and take on things. And then just like Jen sums it up in this like beautifully short <laughs> poem that just like nailed it in 12 words. Um, and I think it it is just that element of it is particularly unique Thanks. And her voice is wonderful, just like you described. Isn't it beautiful? It is like, yeah, like yeah, I was yeah. like, okay, I got to listen to this because he talks about how beautiful her voice gotcha. is. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it really is a great voice. <laughs> the, the engineer 
and Hachette, after we recorded it, was like, you should record audiobooks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and what she thought was a yes, riot. like any kind of thing, relaxation or meditations or uh, totally, yeah, yeah. She has a, her voice has a thread count of six hundred. Like it's amazing. I thought that was such a good description. Okay, I have. I know Dan said last question, but I, um, <laughs> but it's not really. Um, I just wanted to ask you. You talk about like how everyone recommended like have these kids like a zombie. Sure. Okay. Do you recommend it now or no? I think it's very personal. I think like it's um, it's it's. I think. I mean, I'm sure you you guys would all say a similar thing, which is like it's so specific of an experience, and it's so all encompassing. I have this chapter where it's like how people about joy and how when you're younger you have like dark joy, like crazy all night experiences. When you're getting your middle age, you're into middle age, you're sort of like, you get light joy. Like having a child is like just light things. And and everyone expects you to feel joy when you have kids. They say, is it the most joy you've ever experienced? You're like, maybe, I don't know. Like it's not, the way I describe it is it's not joy. It's like your aperture is opening to feelings and experiences that you've never felt before. And I, I make a joke that it's like a cliche the people go, oh, I'm seeing the world through baby's eyes. And then like, by the end, I'm like, I'm seeing the world through baby's eyes. Like, I totally get it. Like it, it took me, it took me a long time to understand and internalize cliches that I'd heard and made fun of for many years. And so to answer your question, like I can't answer that for people, but I will say it's the hardest thing I've ever done and the most rewarding thing I've ever done. And so, you know, it's a, it's sort of your call. It's not easy. <laughs> right. I mean, nine tenths of the book is definitely about how it's not easy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> As your daughter gets older, how do you think her role in your comedy will change? Have you thought about, you know, leaving her not out of it, but uh, being protective of her privacy or does she come along for this ride with you and, until she's old enough to say stop? It's so funny because one of my favorite authors is Zadie Smith and, and she has kids and I was talking to her about this exact thing. And I said to her, I go, I think uh, I'm not going to write about Una anymore, like ever again. Like, I think I'm going to sort of let it go. And Zadie goes, good luck with that. <laughs> that sums it up. I mean, it's like, you know, Ira Glass, who was a producer on the show and really helped uh, sculpt the book in certain ways too. Like, he's heard me say that before and he always kind of scoffs at it and says like, well, look, I mean, like the people who you care most about Una and Jen are going to continue to be in your life. The kind of comedy you like is the kind of comedy where you're digging as deep emotionally as you're able to. So you can say that, but it, it probably won't stick. Once you have seen the world through baby's eyes, it's hard to. Through baby's eyes. Yeah. 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 Well, Mike, we are just so excited to be able to share with you. As I do your outro, do you want me to not read the subtitle of the book? Would that make you feel better? Like, should we just try (laughs) it out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Mike, thank you so much for being here. The new one is available next week. (laughs) It's hilarious, insightful, charming, and just 
abundantly entertaining. Uh, we'll have pre-order links for Amazon and our favorite bookshop.org on our show page. So Mike, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thanks for having me on. This thank was so you. fun. Okay, on to our listener question. It's being read by the wonderful Shasha Leonard. How old were your kids when they transitioned from mommy or daddy to mom or dad? My kid will be three in August, and I thought I had a few more years. But apparently, I was wrong. And I'm not emotionally prepared for this. Three is very early. Very, very early to make this transition. My kids moved from daddy to dad around eight. I had actually sort of thought that when Lyra made the move, Harper might just follow her right into it. Harper's two years younger than Lyra, but in fact, she didn't. She held on to daddy even longer than Lyra did. I found it really hard when that happened, even though that's like a totally developmentally like average age for that to happen. Like I had a lot emotionally attached to that identity. And when I think back to their little kid selves, that's definitely the thing I hear them saying. I mean, now sometimes they would say it like a thousand times in an hour and I don't miss that. Um, and in general, like, I don't miss the little, little kid days. Like, there's a whole bunch of new problems, but I prefer this time. I mean, as we talked to Mike about, right, the kids are now sort of semi-rational human beings, and that's just a little more comprehensible to me. But it can be a tough transition for a parent to make because it has all kinds of other things tied up in it. And three does seem very early to me. And I have a question for you two. I do want to know whether your kids are there yet with you from mommy to mom, but I also want to know... If the kid's only three, can this letter writer push them back? Can you be like, I'm mommy? <laughs> I think so. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, I'd prefer you call me mommy. You know, I, I think that they are, I would imagine, because Naima went through a period, uh, maybe a little bit older than three, but it, it's been a couple of years now, and she's seven, where she tried out mm -hmm. maybe mama. And it just didn't stick, which I was glad about because that's not necessarily, you know, uh, for me, mama just sounds like a much older person than I am. And, you know, I, I think of mama as Mama's grandmotherly in certain ways. Uh, yeah. It's just, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go mm -hmm. get mama's, you know, remote control and my teeth. And so she's tried a few things out and, and has stuck with mommy hardcore, which I'm relieved about. And I call my mother mom when I'm talking to her. I think in my head to some extent, she's still mommy, but my father and my siblings and I, I have two sisters, two older sisters. They have the same mom. We all have the same dad. Two of us more often than not will say daddy. You know, I realized that that's just the thing that has stuck with us. Like, you know, one of my sisters will say, have you talked to dad? And the other one will always say, have you talked to daddy? And I'm trying to think, I'm like, I'm struggling kind of like, well, how do I do dress him directly. I don't feel like I often say either, you know, I think when I'm talking to him, it's like, we're established, you know, who this is. But I, I think I do kind of go back and forth between dad and daddy with my father and I'm 35 years old. So I would like to be mommy forever. I've let my daughter know that I am mommy. This letter writer can do and, this too. You can, you know, this kid is three. You can do the same. Yeah, I think so. And, and refer to themselves too. Like, do you want mommy to do that? You know, I think you can do some of that to yeah. get it. I actually don't remember what my kids call me. I think there's too many of them calling my ah! mom all the time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I just, it is just like, I when I think about mommy, I just think mom, 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 mommy, mommy, mommy. Uh, like that is, that is just like what I hear all the time. Yes. It's hard to let that kind of stuff go like I'm sure that I will notice when no one in this house is calling me mommy anymore but I know that yeah. some 
collection of the kids at some points are. I did want to note that Prince Charles, like, sometimes still calls his mother the queen mommy. Like, there's, like, a, I know, when I looked it up, like, in 2012, he, like, published this whole speech letter thing, and he's, like, my mommy. All right, I've I've now completely turned around on this issue, and no one should ever use that term. We definitely, whatever Charles and Elizabeth have going on is not what we want to do. I mean... Uh, Mike Pence still calls his wife mother. Um, but you know, I think also, I think it's not that they're. Chi- I would, I would wager a letter writer. It's not that your ch- your child has just simply grown out of mommy or daddy. I bet it's probably a book, a TV show, something that they've watched where they either like the character who's saying mom and dad a lot. They like how it sounds. It's new. It's different. Or maybe they're noticing that on TV you hear more mom and dad than you hear mommy and daddy. So I would say get some books that use the word mom. Mommy and Daddy, you know, one of our favorite books to read when I was really small was called I Love You, Mommy. And I think there's an I Love You, Daddy version. It's just a, it's an adorable little bear, you know, and his mommy bear who's taking care of him. And, you know, it says mommy about 500 times in the book and just reinforce mommy. Yeah, I think it, they're probably like trying it on. Or if you don't have the book, just when you're reading a book and say it's mommy, mom, right. just make yeah, they it can't read. You can mommy, put anything, right? put anything <laughs> in a book for like another yeah. six months before they start being like, wait a minute. Yeah, exactly. Before they hey, know. Did either of you, when you were growing up, have friends who called their parents by their first names? I did. I don't Mikey know, but and I was Bobby Gossman called their parents Fred and Eileen. <laughs> And it was so weird. I remember using it as a child when I would be saying mom and my mom would just be like doing something else, yelling, (laughs) being like, Mary Grace, (laughs) like at a young age. And then she's like, oh, like, hello. That's just a survival technique. My my voice. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But no, I don't I don't know that we had any that that was like what they called. But I grew up in Georgia. So like um, everybody was like Mr. and Miss, ma'am, sir. Like, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know anyone who did it. I had, fr- I remember the friends distinctly who, like, when they referred to their parents, would talk about them by their first name, you know. But when they were speaking to them face to face, they would, you know, they would refer to them as as mom or dad or mommy and daddy. Right. But when you're talking to their friends, you're like, yeah, Nikki and Dennis say I can't go out tonight. Yeah, yeah. like, because I felt very mature. It wasn't a thing I necessarily did until I was but a teenager. I would never I remember do it how to their grown face. it sounded. No. My children tried that out when they realized that Jeff and I had real <laughs> yes, names. Yes. They like tried out calling us by our names. And I told them that yeah. those were our adult mm-hmm. names and that they could only adults could refer to that's us. Just, that my way. understanding is that's so, a who knows that's what a psychological law. thing I've done to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, might, it is. Yeah. yeah. I just was like, yeah. oh, those are adult names. Like it's important that you know those should you need to ask another adult about us, but you don't call us. That. So, um, so like Na- Naima definitely went through a stage. I think her dad's name was a little bit less exciting for her because it's also her brother's name. But like with my name where she would test out, you know, saying Jamila, Jamila, you know, <laughs> or um, or she played, she'd come up with games to play where like we switch roles and like oh, she yeah, just yeah. The, the delight she takes. And we, we had to play this game <laughs> on Saturday, you know, the delight she takes and, you know, calling me Jamila or referring to Jamila is a lot of fun for her. But also... In my family, particularly with my father's side, and this was something that we found in the African-centered daycare center that we sent Naima to for um, preschool and pre-kindergarten, our adults were recalled Mama, Jamila, Baba, David. Um, So she's used to hearing adults' first names, I think, a little bit more. And like her brother calls me, or he... 
never says my name out loud, but he refers to me as Mama Jamila <laughs> as opposed to, you know, I don't actually know what some what what <laughs> what, what, what the, the other option, option would have been. I get, you know, like Ms. Jamila. Mr. Ms. Jamila. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, like a Miss Jamila thing. And so I've usually, I've tried to avoid like with kids um, call me Miss Jamila and to call me Mama Jamila because it kind of, it confers a certain level of, I think, motherliness and, you know, adulthood in a way that Miss Jamila could also be the teenager who, you know, works at the grocery store, you know, who's still a kid themselves. Yeah. And I'm a maternal figure. I'm a real adult here. I might have pink hair and... <laughs> But I am a real grown up, and I should be. It's important to remind everyone in the room of that. That's the case. Yes, it is. All, yeah. well, you all, I mean, you all can see me, but they can't hear me. On you know, like I think there are people who sometimes expect me to show up looking a lot more mature than I do, and then they're like, "Wait, who's that?" And I'm like, "Oh, that's 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 <laughs> that's that's Jamila. There she is." You know, that's Mama Jamila. Mama Jamila. That's who that is yeah. that's exactly. Right. So I think the letter writer should take after Jamila, and she should either instruct her child to call her mommy. Or model that behavior, yeah. right? Is that we we've all we're all yeah. in agreement yep. that you can you can turn back you can this turn behavior. back the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Well, letter writer, thank you so much for your question. Our show relies on questions from you, the listeners. So if you have something you'd like to hear on the show, please, please, please send it in. Email us at momanddad at slate.com. Okay, the show isn't over yet. It's time for recommendations. Dan, what do you have for us? I have the most self-serving recommendation imaginable. Subscribe to my podcast. Lyra and I, as I mentioned on the show a couple weeks ago, are making a podcast together since we're stuck at home all the time. We have released it out into the wild. It's called You Pick Tonight. It is a father-daughter double feature podcast. Each episode, Lyra picks one movie for me, and I pick one movie for her, and then we talk about them. So far in episode one, I picked Pan's Labyrinth, and she picked Whisper of the Heart, then in episode two, I picked Police Story, and she picked Akira. It's been really interesting for me to listen to the way that she reads art and talks about art and the way she thinks about storytelling. It's very fun to be challenged by her, as I frequently am. And if you've got a teen who really loves movies, you might consider watching and listening along with us. I think it might be a pretty fun experience. It's called You Pick Tonight. Find it on Apple or Stitcher and many other fine podcast platforms. I love it. Congratulations. Thanks. Jamila? Yes. So if there are any readers of Karen Feeding who are listening, which I know that there are, some of you all, if you engage in the comments, may have noticed that I have a dedicated crew of, let's not say trolls, I'll say <laughs> reluctant fans who uh, often refer back to a column in which I suggested that a letter writer who was filled with anxiety about her husband leaving the um, his marijuana vape pen out and their toddler child, you know, seeing it. And, and she just had concerns about his, you know, new embrace of marijuana and how it played out in their house. And since I am very pro pot, I gave what I thought was, you know, advice on how to safely maneuver that. And one of the things that I mentioned, you know, I offhandedly joked that perhaps she should try some too, like relax. Perhaps she should have. <laughs> perhaps she should have. And there are some people who like the way that that has been reconstructed into, aren't you the one who smokes weed in the room with your daughter? You know, um, <laughs> has been comical, uh, a little unsettling, but, but comical to some extent. But 
with that, um, I have long been uh, aware of the necessity of having the right conversations with my daughter about marijuana. Um, I think I mentioned on the show before that I was outed as a marijuana user by a doctor during a joint doctor's visit hmm. uh, and kind of was forced to have to explain something. And so I've got this great book. It came in the mail after Naima left uh, for the week, but I'm really looking forward to sharing it with her when she gets back. And it's called, It's Just a Plant. It's a children's story about marijuana. <laughs> She's holding up the She's book right now. The, the cover book. is gorgeous. Oh, so it good. looks adorable. It is so beautiful. It's so like, so it's by Ricardo Cortez, who is a longtime illustrator who has uh, stepped into the role. Uh, well, I should say he illustrated and he wrote the book. This isn't the first book that he's written, but I think he's best known as being an illustrator. And it's a really beautiful story. It finds a little girl discovering what marijuana is and she gets to talk to her parents, a farmer, a doctor, a police officer. She's introduced to the reasons behind marijuana prohibition and how it has been used to criminalize communities and the tremendous benefits that it offers and that this is primarily, with the exception of some medical use, an adult um, indulgence plant is to be used for largely for adults, either recreationally or medicinally. And it's just a really great book. And it has an afterword by Marsha Rosenbaum, who is the founder of the Safety First Drug Education Program and has spent a lot of time investigating drug use and addressing parents on how they can safely discuss marijuana with their children um, and alleviate some of their own anxiety about telling you that this thing should be legal, that it is a good thing, you know, that it has to be used responsibly. And in certain ways, we think of it in the way that, you know, wine is mommy's juice. It's not for you. It's something that you can engage with when you get older, while also not making it seem so compelling, right? And, then, and so you're saying this is a good thing, then surely, you know, I don't want to wait until I'm adult to get my hands on it. I want to try it now. So I think it's a really lovely book. So it's just a plant. Educational for, for children and for parents, it sounds like. Yes, very much so. It <laughs> talks about the history of marijuana in this country. It's just a really fact-driven book that's very nuanced and delightful in so many ways. That's great. Good one. Elizabeth, what are you recommending? Um, so I'm recommending making balloon animals with your family. Jeff came home from a run with a book about balloon animals that had zero actual balloons inside of it. Uh, I think he picked it up from a little library. He like runs a lot and um, ran back with it. It had no balloon animals. I ordered like the smallest bag possible, which was 15,000 balloons and an air pump on Amazon. <laughs> and we spent like, I was like, is this going to be like our thing now? And Jeff was kind of like, yeah, maybe. And it turns out, yes, we just have made like hundreds of balloon animals with the kids. It's super fun. Probably not incredibly environmentally friendly as there are balloon shards everywhere. But Everything Jeff makes looks like a dog. I'm actually pretty good at it. And the kids really love it. And it's just like a fun thing that like who knows how to do that? Nobody. So it was really fun to learn together. So I recommend just getting like a bag of balloons and a pump on Amazon. And there's a million YouTube videos on how to make all kinds of things. And you no matter the age of your children, they will laugh. It will be fun. Uh, it's just listeners. I just want to, you to balance <laughs> this recommendation against the photo on Facebook of Elizabeth <laughs> sitting in a chair making her 7,000th balloon animal that Jeff posted yeah. where Elizabeth I'll, just I'll looked like she wanted it. to die. Well, it was his project and then he was terrible <laughs> at it and I was good. So the kids wanted me to make all the things and I was like, yeah. 
I did not do this project. It's crazy how this engineer who can make anything <laughs> yes. just happened to be bad at making balloon animals. And like the kids are screaming what color they want and what, uh, yeah. Yeah, but Jeff jokes he's going to get a fanny pack and he is going to go to things and make balloon animals. So we'll see. Can't wait. <laughs> All right. Well, one more time, if you have a question, email us at slate.com and join us on Facebook. Just search for Slate Parenting. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson. For Jamila Lemieux and Dan Coyce, I'm Elizabeth Newman.